You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Today's show is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's obvious. Blood Groove. Torso and Pinches. Ironside. MD. Scuttlebutt. Hartman. Gingrich, Clan Roland, Big Beard, Willie P, Schmarls, Buggy, Chairboat, Long Knives Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Pitlock, The Sextant, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And our quartermasters, Buddy, Heather, Howard, Hunter, Crimson Davy Thunder, and Felony Melanie. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons. Artie, Brittany, Dimitri, Jesse, Mark, Sean, Taylor, and Thomas. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. The word shark has a crazy history and a baffling etymology. Generally speaking, most words in the English language, not all by any means, but most, can be traced back to one of three sources, either Latin, Old German, or Celtic. And that's not an absolute rule, of course. We get some of our words directly from ancient Greek without a Latin filter. And some of the words we picked up through Spanish actually have an Arabic origin. And there are, of course, all of those culturally relevant words from Hebrew or Native American languages or... You know, you get the idea. There are exceptions to that rule. But generally, we can figure out where a word came from. But the word shark, well... No one really knows where it came from. There are a lot of theories about the origins of the word, but all of them are full of holes. Most romantic, you know, Latin-based languages, their word for shark usually is some variation of the word tiburon, and most Germanic languages use a variant of high. For a long time, because shark is neither of those, it was believed that the word shark was a New World addition to the English language. The Oxford English Dictionary used to source the word shark in the Yucatan Mayan word, shuk. They said that John Hawkins brought that work back to England from one of his voyages, but then, much more recently, 
linguists found the word shark, referring in this case to a big toothy fish, in the mid-15th century, some 50 years before Columbus set sail. So, at this point, nobody knows where shark came from, at least in reference to big toothy fish. I do, though, have a theory, and as you might imagine, it relates to pirates. In the late Middle Ages, we see the word shark pop up now and again, but not in relation to aquatic life. Instead, it's in reference to people who are, in one form or another, not to be trusted. They're con artists or scammers, or more specifically, very often, people who pass bad checks. I think of words like card sharks or pool sharks, and sometimes you'll see that as card sharp, but that usually just means somebody who's very good at cards. A card shark is somebody who pretends to be very bad, gets you to bet a lot of money, and then is amazingly very, very good and takes all of your money. In the Elizabethan era, we begin to see references to what they called sea sharks. Not the fish, but kind of like the gentlemen adventurers of the Elizabethan era, the privateers under the queen, but in this case, the sea sharks were much less reputable. They weren't Hawkins or Drake or Raleigh. No, these men, they were famous for a tactic that the French, often on the receiving end of this tactic, called the Rouge de Guerre, in English a ruse of war. They would fly a false flag atop their mast, get in close, and then attack. This is not a tactic unfamiliar to us on the Pirate History Podcast. These sea sharks were just pirates. Some of them may have had a letter of mark, but most probably didn't. And I think, and this is just my interpretation, but I think that they used words like sea sharks because the English didn't want to mark their own Englishmen with the mark of an outlaw. More commonly, they would use the euphemism sea wolf that had a less derogatory implication. Wolves are hunters and dangerous, to be sure, but if they were hunting the French or the Spanish or whoever the English hated at the time, well, it was all to the good. I think that sea shark was a euphemism for pirate that the English used to avoid any unfortunate implications about their own men, but here's where things begin to get dicey. How do sailors who sail with dubious legality and who are fond of false flag attacks, how does their name come to mean Big Toothy Fish? And to be fair, I don't have a solid answer for you. You know, we've already seen in the mid-1400s they were using shark to refer to predatory fish, but those sharks that they would see in and around northern and western Europe were usually pretty small. Very occasionally, today, you will see bigger sharks in the waters off of Western Europe. But of course, today, we're going through a period of global temperature rise, and in the early modern period, they were going through a period called the Little Ice Age, so temperatures were much colder then. They were unlikely to have ever seen a shark until they began to sail to warmer climates. The coasts of Africa... Southeast Asia, the West Indies. It was only then that they would have begun to see things like bull sharks and tiger sharks and great whites. I think, and this is with no evidence that I have to back it up, that 
The English saw these big, toothy, predatory fish and thought, Huh, well, if sea sharks, pirates, hunt you at sea, and you've got these giant, toothy monsters hunting you at sea, well, why not call them sea sharks? And I know it's not exactly a scientifically sound theory here, but when you think about some of the other weird connections that English speakers have used to make new words up on the spot, well, it's not that out of the question. I bring this up today because, well, first of all, I spent several hours researching the etymology of the word shark, and it sent me down a rabbit hole, and it drove me a little crazy, and if I have to suffer, you're going to have to suffer too. But, also, the reason I was researching the etymology of the word shark is because Captain William Kidd is about to be known the world over, not as a pirate, not yet, but as a sea shark. This is episode 244, A Wolf in Shark's Clothing. We left off last time with Commodore Thomas Warren. Thomas Warren was an awful, awful human being. His crewmen were left to suffer, starve, and die, while he and his officers wanted for nothing in the ways of personal comfort on board a ship. There is nothing good to say about Commodore Thomas Warren. When we left off, the Commodore had just ordered Captain William Kidd to hand over 50 of his own men. That's a full third of his crew of about 150. These men... Remember, Captain Kidd had just seen the conditions on board Commodore Warren's flagship. He knew that they would suffer and die at the hands of an uncaring captain. So Captain Kidd... left. In the night... He ordered Adventure Galley put under sail and ordered men down to the oars, and they got out of there as fast as possible. Come morning, the day that the transfer of crew was supposed to take place, Commodore Warren awoke to find that Adventure Galley and Captain Kidd had slipped away in the night. Captain Kidd had, in the view of Commodore Warren, and, let's be honest, in the view of the law and the king and God and country and all of that, Captain Kidd had betrayed him. The eyes of basic human decency may have something different to say about it. Nonetheless, Commodore Warren was displeased, to say the least. Now, in the age of sail, ships sailed faster than they ever had before, but it's still not that fast. And you can see a long, long way on the open ocean. Warren and his lookouts could still see the Adventure Galley's sails making their getaway, but by this point they were a mere speck on the horizon. So Warren ordered his two fastest ships, frigates, both of them, the Advice and the Tiger, to sail out and capture William Kidd. Tiger was the same ship that had managed to catch up with Captain Kidd just a day before. But William Kidd had a vast head start, and his oarsmen were working hard to ensure that the ship stayed at absolutely top speed. They had that advantage, but beyond that... Captain Kidd had a plan. He stood on the quarterdeck with his spyglass to his eye, keeping watch on the Commodore's fleet. His first mate stood beside him, and there were lookouts in the rigging doing the same. And there came a moment on that morning of December 12, 1696, when Captain Kidd could no longer see the fleet through his glass. But he waited. After a few long minutes, though, the lookouts announced, They're out of you, Captain! So Kidd gave the order to change course, suddenly and drastically. 
That order was relayed down into the lower decks, where the oarsmen began to sweat and swear as they pulled at their oars hard. And if you've ever rowed a canoe, you get the basic idea here. The crew on the port side of the ship, the left side if you're facing the prow, they rowed forward but on the starboard side, they rowed in the opposite direction, so that they would turn the ship, not quite on a dime, but not too far off. It's the kind of maneuver that would have been impossible on any ship that did not carry oars, so most of the ships of the Age of Sail. And they could turn, yeah, but it would be slower and more arduous. Beyond that, if they lose the wind, they'd be stranded and your pursuers would be able to catch up with you because they are using the very same winds. But Adventure Galley had the option to furl her sails, to take that sharp, sudden turn, and to head farther out to sea, out to the west. And as soon as the Adventure Galley was out of sight of those two frigates, that's what they did, and they pushed hard at it. Now, they would have furled their sails by this point, which would have made them a lot harder to see, but there still would have been a window of time in which the frigates on their former trail might have been able to see the adventure galley on her new heading. But that only would have happened if their pursuers happened to look drastically to the southwest. William Kidd, though, was gambling that they would keep their spyglasses trained on the south, where the winds alone could have taken him. This would have been a tense few hours. Captain Kidd, his first mate, the lookouts, anyone with a spyglass would have had their eyes locked on the two pursuing frigates, looking for any sign that the two ships were changing course, that they were coming after them. But by probably about mid-afternoon, they would have all been secure in the knowledge that the frigates were not following them. The adventure galley had slipped their notice and made their way far out to the west, where they could catch the winds to the south and the east, making wide berth of the Cape of Good Hope. Captain Kidd had made his escape. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies well of course you dig her up and you live with her Aww. the show examines weird things there are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses oh i miss those days things used to be so much simpler cat and jethro then there's the urine wheel which sounds like a really bad game show they've done weird things Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Once Captain Kidd had left Commodore Warren behind, once he had made his successful escape, 
We lose track of the adventure galley for a while. We don't know what they did, but we can surmise their route. Kid had left behind the trade winds that would have sailed south and east around the Cape. Now, further out, there were the trade winds that carried ships back to Europe, heading west and north. But even farther out than that, there were the Antarctic trade winds, which once again carried ships south and east toward the Indian Ocean. But these were dangerous, unpredictable, and freezing winds. Still, that was the road that Captain Kidd would have taken. It was a dangerous road, make no mistake, but it was dangerous because of the weather, not because of any enemy shipping. No one in their right mind chose to catch these winds. Captain Kidd was unlikely to see anyone out there, and if he did, they would also probably be trying to escape the long arm of the law. Of course, Captain Kidd was not trying to escape the long arm of the law. He was a legal privateer that had the king's papers in his possession, but maybe it was best to avoid Commodore Warren for a while. And he did so. Commodore Warren had no idea where he was. Any sane captain would sail for the Cape, which is what Commodore Warren and his fleet did. When those two frigates chasing the adventure galley realized that they had lost her, they hurried on to the Cape. Warren's fourth-rate HMS Windsor and his fleet of warships and East India Company ships, they followed suit. And they met at Cape Town on the 1st of January, 1697. And I call it Cape Town, but that's not actually accurate for 1697. It was still Dutch territory. I suppose they may have called it something like Kopstad, but I can't actually find any Dutch name for the colony, aside from the Cape of Good Hope anywhere. Regardless, calling it Cape Town still wouldn't be accurate because there really wasn't a town there in 1697. There was a castle, the Cape of Good Hope Castle, and it's one of the great VOC factories of all time. It may not have been a town, but it was large enough to be one. It was a huge compound that housed barracks and homes and a manor for the governor and, naturally, a bunch of warehouses. But it was a castle. There were high, strong walls surrounding the entire settlement, and they had cannons guarding every approach. Including approaches by land, the locals did not like the East India Company, but most of their cannon did guard Table Bay and their harbor. Now, in The Pirate Hunter, Richard Zacks calls the Dutch, quote, a rising power in the East Indies trade. And that's true, they had yet to reach the zenith of their power. They were still rising, but it kind of makes the Dutch sound like plucky up-and-comers, doesn't it? Real underdogs. The Dutch East India Company, which was virtually a branch of the Dutch Navy and the Dutch Empire, well, it was the largest, most extensive, and most militarily powerful trading power in the world. For nearly a century, by this point, the Dutch had outshined the Portuguese and the Spanish, and it would be almost another century before Britain really showed up as a contender for the number one spot. However, now that the King of England was the Dutch Prince of Orange, they were very close allies. The Netherlands and England, to a more limited extent, were, by this point, capitalist countries. So there was still a healthy competition between firms within the English-Dutch world. The competition between the Dutch and English East India companies is a thing of legend, but 
At the end of the day, they were all friends and could all work together to make sure that the French suffered. During this era, especially during the Nine Years' War, you would frequently find naval convoys in the East Indies, even the West Indies, with an amalgamation of Dutch and English ships. Usually one would not find the Royal English Navy and the Dutch Navy sailing together, but you would have ships from their respective East India companies and private merchant traders as well from either or both. And it's worth mentioning those private, smaller trading ships for a minute. You know, smaller firms weren't allowed to trade in spices or slaves or usually even things like ivory or gold. But they did make some pretty handsome profits just by supplying the East India Company factories. You know, the company would not always provide luxuries from home. Wine, fine foodstuffs, even things like combs and mirrors. It was a lucrative business. All of that is to say that the English were welcomed at the Cape of Good Hope without any of the tariffs or runaround that ships from other nations might have to endure. Even though it was a Dutch colony, a commodore in the Royal Navy was an honored guest. Now, you will recall that Captain Kidd's former business partner, Robert Livingston, sent that letter to England, informing the English Secretary of State, the Duke of Shrewsbury, that Kidd was a rapscallion of dubious honor and intent. He didn't go so far as to call him a pirate, but it was inferred that that was his plan. Livingston did send copies of his letter to a few governors in the West Indies, but that's it. As soon as the Secretary of State, and also an investor in Captain Kidd's voyage, as soon as he heard this message, he began to disseminate it everywhere. But of course, that was a long process. Getting word from London to India took time. Still, Commodore Thomas Warren should have heard the word by this point. You'll remember that when he began this leg of his voyage, he was supposed to stop at Madeira to buy wine and collect wood and water. But he missed Madeira because he was bad at his job. And then he probably would have heard word of Captain Kidd when he arrived at St. Helena. But again, he missed St. Helena completely, depriving his men of necessary supplies and any word of this infamous English pirate. Thanks to his own arrogant stupidity, the men of the fleet began to call him Wrong Way Warren, which is cute until you remember that those men giving him that nickname all looked like skeletal zombie holocaust victims. Regardless, Warren had no news of Captain Kidd, probably had never heard of him before they met. But that meeting, that left such a negative impression on Warren and his under-officers of Captain Kidd was the first news that the Dutch at Cape Town had heard of Captain William Kidd. He told the officers at the fortress and all of the other captains present all about his meeting with Kidd. Those officers at the castle would later report in an investigation of Captain Kidd, quote, The captains reported that, after leaving Brazil, they had met a pirate carrying 32 guns and 200 men, whose captain, Kit, they mean Kid, told them by commission of the King of England he had been expressly equipped to search for and destroy six English pirates in the Red Sea. But as the English themselves believed, he was also a pirate. 
and, as in conversation, he had let fall that he had no difficulty about whom he captured, and after having sailed with the fleet forty-eight hours, he thoroughly spied out everything, he quickly skulked away during the night. End quote. This was the first news of Captain Kidd in the region, but it was distressing for everyone there at the Cape. A new dangerous pirate in their midst, who knew? what kind of skullduggery he might get up to. And remember, everybody stopped off at the Cape. You know, not pirates, of course, and not the French, but virtually everyone else. It was the best place to stock up on water and wood and food for thousands of miles. And all of those people were hearing about this Captain Kidd. Suddenly everyone, the Dutch, the English, their navies, their respective East India companies, they were all on the lookout for Captain Kidd and the Adventure Galley. And remember, the Adventure Galley is not a discreet ship. It would get noticed. But Captain Kidd did have one major factor in his favor. Richard Zacks tells us that Commodore Warren had learned some interesting facts from the pirate Samuel Burgess. I'm not exactly sure when or how this transference of knowledge took place. Burgess would have been in New York at the time. So did, at some point, Warren travel to New York and have a drink with him, or was it from a separate report that Burgess made, which Commodore Warren had read? I don't know. There are a number of inconsistencies like that in this story, and it's not the fault of any of the historians writing it. I find myself, thanks to the information we have from the original sources, saying things like, wait, how did that happen? Why did that happen? When did that happen? Quite a lot. Those inconsistencies are building something in me that... Well, more on that in a second. For the moment, Samuel Burgess had allegedly, however it took place, communicated to Commander Warren that there were some 1,500 pirates in the Indian Ocean and Red Sea. They sailed out of the harbor of a fortified pirate utopia at St. Mary's Island. The name Libertalia did not yet exist, not in the record at least, but the idea was very much alive in the minds of the English people, at this point none more so than Commodore Warren himself. Warren relayed, this news of 1,500 pirates active in the Indian Ocean to those at the Cape. Warren relayed beyond just Captain Kidd this news of 1,500 pirates to everyone at the Cape of Good Hope. And let's put that into some perspective, shall we? At the height of the Brethren of the Coast, the most liberal estimates I've seen claim that there were maybe 1,000 sailors among their ranks, and even those are usually flawed statistics. They will usually include the privateers who were not piratically inclined, merely warships in wartime in the employ of England or France. Later on, during the Pirate Republic at Nassau, an English official from Barbados would claim that there were 1,000 pirates in the Bahamas, and even that's probably too high at their height. It was probably closer to seven or eight hundred pirates in the Bahamas. So, Warren here believes and spreads that there are twice as many pirates in the Indian Ocean as there were at the height 
of the Golden Age. Moreover, he believed that there were a full 24 pirate ships in the region, including seven big ships, by which he means frigates, of between 24 and 40 guns. So twice as many pirates as during the Republic with a full seven Queen Anne's Revenges sailing around, not to mention a few blackbeards to top it all off. Thomas II and Henry Every alone terrified the whole of the English world. Suffice it to say, this threat was overblown. It wasn't true. They didn't have anywhere close to that many pirates. But thanks to Commodore Warren, word was going to spread that that was the case. When Warren put in at Table Bay, there at Cape Town, there were a bunch of Dutch ships there, obviously, but there were two other English ships as well. There was an East Indiaman on her way back to London, but then there was the Scarborough. The Scarborough was one of those private ships we mentioned, not an East Indiaman, but this particular ship was on her way to India and carried a supercargo, which is what they call a VIP. He was an officer of the East India Company, taking passage on a private vessel to India. This supercargo's name was Alan Catchpole, and Catchpole would write a letter that would be carried on that East India Company back to England. That letter reads, in part, quote, We sail hence in company with a Dutch pink bound to Batavia. We are from many hands informed that just off the coast here lies one Captain Kidd, an old eminent West India privateer. He says he is going anywhere for gain. He has 150 very stout men and a pretty great frigate of 36 guns. He wants liquors and sails and, being very loath to part with any of ours, has stayed us. So long he was on board the men of war and showed such an authentic commission that they durst not meddle with him, and now that we are two ships, he will not with us. End quote. And there's a lot of, well, inconsistencies in that letter. You know, first of all, he makes it sound like Captain Kidd is menacing them off the coast, like he's lying in wait for all their liquor and sails, but that's not what's happening. Captain Kidd's running. And I don't necessarily think that Catchpole is lying here, but merely that the report given to him by Warren was inaccurate. And there's a, you know, there's a lot of that in the story of Captain Kidd. I want to leave you today with a question. Captain William Kidd seems to be making a lot of enemies in a relatively short period of time. Virtually everyone he comes across finds him to be a drunk and a bore and a loathsome pirate. But all of these sources, all of which will be used as evidence against Kidd in the near future, well, they all come from straight-backed, wig-wearing, God-fearing, upstanding subjects. Lords and captains, and now a commodore. The kind of men for whom piracy was not an affront only to the law, but also to the dignity of God and country, and moreover, a threat to their profits. All of this evidence was gathered by Royal Navy investigators, who were actively building a case against William Kidd. A case that they were holding because, spoiler alert, Henry Every was still at large and everybody was still really mad at England for failing to capture him, especially the Admiralty, so Captain Kidd had to go down. 
Is it possible that all of this, all of these letters and dispatches and meetings at sea, that all of these things, painting Captain Kidd in a distinctly negative, even piratical light, even the news of Captain Kidd's new and improved secret pirate code, his declarations that he would steal a sail from the first ship he came across, no matter who, is it possible that all of it's not true? You know, this is very much a top-down defamation of Captain Kidd. I suppose the question about Captain William Kidd here is, would the elite of English society in 1697, the same group, the Admiralty, that produced and promoted vile human scum like Commodore Thomas Warren, would it be below them to fudge the truth a little bit, to fabricate a story, and to create a villain out of whole cloth to serve their own ends? I'll let you decide. But of course, the answer is they would absolutely do something like that. Next time, Captain Kidd arrives at Libertalia. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. You all make this possible. Thank you. And you know, I'd like to say... I fairly frequently get messages from some of you folks out there saying very kind things about the show, and occasionally you will lament not being able to support the show financially. Now listen, I love taking your money, but part of the reason podcasting is so amazing is because it's free to everyone. Anyone who has an internet connection can listen to a podcast. They don't need a cable package or a subscription service or a ticket. And that's what I love about it, that it's available to anyone who wants to listen. So, if it's a show that you're enjoying, that is enough for me. Thank you, all of you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to hear some of their other fine shows, like The Sit Down, a Mafia History Podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, where you can listen to episodes, check out supplemental information, or get in touch with me. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.
captain has died Let him live on in legend tonight